All right, hello fellow humans with true crime obsessions. Welcome to Crime Obsessed Dog Mom. I'm Michelle, the Crime Obsessed Dog Mom, with my co-host, actually pretty close by, the baby dog known as Rory. Today we are going to look at one of, I don't want to say my favorite, but maybe most interesting to me, uh, Ed Kemper. Without further ado, let's go. Okay, we are back at it. I apologize. Last week I was tired. It was my birthday on Saturday and we did a lot of stuff. Like it was like one of those vacations that wasn't actually a vacation. I took a four day weekend, but like the first day we had an ultrasound um, for the baby. And then the next day we did, oh, we had new furniture delivered, which was like a lot to move a bunch of stuff. And then it was my actual birthday, which is when we found out that we're having a boy. And then that Sunday I was just exhausted. And I was like, I can't do it today. So I do appreciate if hopefully you came back this week, um, that the, the understanding, um, you know, I want to continue to do weekly episodes, but that might change the further along I get, I'm going to do my best but we'll see. I, this is all new territory to me. So we will push on as, as we go here. And yeah, things have been going pretty great. There's the doggy probably getting behind my chair or something. Cause that's what he likes to do. Um, and then I have to worry that I'm going to hit him with my chair. Um, but yeah, so it's been, the last couple weeks have just been crazy. I've had a lot of vacation that I've taken, which, you know, I'm allowed to do. And I got to take another day this off this weekend or this week too for another baby test and stuff. So lots of, lots of things happening. We're really excited, kind of making it more real now. And my sister-in-law's baby shower is coming up and I've got some traveling over the next couple weeks. So I'm going to try to record early because I know that I'm going to be busy slash tired the other days. So, um, but yes, we're in the second trimester now, which is sweet. We are officially quote unquote out of semi the danger zone. Um, but we have lots of testing in August and we're, we're just really excited. And my mom has Oh my gosh. So many, like we had the gender reveal and I did like a little confetti thing. I wanted to do a dog cake, but we couldn't get it in time and I was not going to wait any longer <laughs> than I already had. So, and we, I mean, we didn't wait that long. We got it earlier than normal. Um, so <laughs> I knew it was a boy. Like I just, I don't call it mother's intuition, call it whatever you want it, but I just knew that it was a boy. So my mom was going off that I really thought that, and there's like a Chinese, gender predictor calendar thing. And it was also saying that it was a boy. So she works part-time at Kohl's, which is a, I don't know if it's like all over the United States, but I know we have some people that don't listen or that listen around the world. It's just like a retail place, a clothing store. You can get like other stuff there too. Um, but yeah, it, <laughs> she bought three bags and my friend was like, is this a baby shower too? Like she no joke bought me so many clothes and then I bought some clothes. It's a mess because 
my one current niece I don't obviously won't get any close from her. I mean, unless they have gender neutral, which I really don't care, you know. But then my sister-in-law's having a girl, so she's having a lot of girly, girlier clothes. And there's just no one around me that has had a boy recently. Once again, not that it matters. Gender neutral, we're doing, like, not a blue bedroom. We're doing, like, a green bedroom. But, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been crazy. But we're really excited, and things have been just that's crazy. I, I can't believe I'm, I'm going to be 15 weeks this week already. Like, I'm like, wait, I feel like I just found out. But yeah, it's, it's still surreal that people know. And I've got like really good feedback from everybody. So it's been, it's been, it's like a fairy tale, I guess. And, you know, he'll be here sooner, sooner than, you know, sooner. Oh, I just hit my table really hard. Sooner than I think uh, you know, he'll be here soon. So especially once the end of the year starts happening. So yeah, here we are. Um, happy to be back doing this this week. Like I had mentioned in the intro, we're going to do Ed Kemper. He's been covered on a lot of different podcasts and I'm going to do it the most justice that I can. If you've heard it on other podcasts, this is probably going to be pretty similar because, well, you know, there's only, the story can only be told so many different ways. So to get started, um, his name is Edmund, but most of the time he's just referred to as Ed. He was born December 18th, 1948 in Burbank, California. His parents were Edmund Jr. and Carnell Kemper. And he also had one older and one younger sister. Uh, and that was very close to his father. So you'll kind of start to see... He was really close to his, his dad, but his mom is definitely his arch enemy. So his mom was an alcoholic and she suffered from borderline personality disorder. She had really erratic behavior and his dad at one point, who was a World War II veteran, um, remarked, suicide missions, this is a quote from him, suicide missions in wartime and the later atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Carnell. So just use that as a as a, a point that the, she was not a great woman uh, or a great mother. Um, so because of this, he was troubled. Edward or Ed, I'm sorry, Ed Kemper, the younger uh, one, was troubled when they got divorced. They got divorced in 1957, and his mother took unfortunately, Ed and his sisters and moved to Helena, Montana, which is a much different environment than Burbank, California. He was very bright, um, very smart kid. They, they later found out that he had like an IQ of 145, which is quite high. Um, he had sociopathic traits at a pretty early age. He was a pyromaniac, which he likes to light things on fire. He often used to pull his sister's dolls um, to enact like, well, he used his, his sister's dolls to enact like murder and bizarre sexual rituals. And then particularly like this is, he liked pulling their heads off. <laughs> and at age 10, his, that disturbing behavior kind of just escalated to like a new level, which this is seen a lot with serial killers. Um, he killed both of the fam fam family cats and even buried one alive 
and later decapitated it. He like dug it up and later decapitated it. And I heard somewhere that he like put the hat, the cat's head on a like stake. Like these are, these are signs, people. These are signs that some, 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 some stuff that's going to happen. So without her husband around, uh, Ed's mom began to focus her aggression on him. She made him sleep in the basement, claiming that he would hurt his sisters. She regularly just berated him and insulted him, telling him that no one w- woman would ever fall in love with him. Uh, he fascin- uh, fantasized about being executed by a, the electric chair, chair and would often enact it as a game with his sisters. So this is just, these are all red flags, people. <laughs> he, his emotionally, I mean, his mom was emotionally abusive, would like lock him in the basement. She was afraid and that he would rape the youngest, the, the youngest daughter. At thir- uh, age 13, he actually ran away, Ed did, and he made it his way back. You know, he wanted to make it to his dad who was still in California, but he found out that his dad had remarried and made his now new stepson, the focus, you know, of his affection. So all of his dad's affection was going to his new step, uh, stepson. Um, obviously, Ed was like torn up, real heartbreaking. He ended up being sent back to his mom in Montana. At age 14, he was sent, uh, Ed was sent to live with his paternal grandparents, Edmund Sr. and Maud Kemper in California, in North Fork, California, even though he, at 14 years old, was 6'4", six, 6 four, six feet 4 inches tall, he was easily bullied by his classmates. I don't know if he was, like, bullied because he was so tall, but, I mean, that's, that's a big kid. Um, he didn't get along with his grandma, and in the afternoon of August 27th, 1964, he actually shot and killed her. And then his grandpa came home, Edmund Sr., with a rifle that had been given to him previously for Christmas. Sources vary on exactly how it happened. Some claim it was like a spur of the moment after they had like an argument. Others claim that she was working on the next, like her next children, she was like an author, a next children's book when she was shot and um, Ed just kind of wanted to see how it felt to kill someone. And then he killed his grandpa when he came home from the grocery store to spare him the sight of his dead wife. And then he made two phone calls, first to his mom to tell her what he had done, and then to the local police to also say, hey, I just killed my grandparents. He sat down on the porch and waited for them to, the cops to show up. He was arrested, obviously, and then he would be later diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and he was in the a mental health hospital um it, yeah <laughs> i can't, i don't know how to say the state hospital it's a state hospital <laughs> for the for the criminally insane he really got along with the psychiatrist and was even made which this is weird right he's a patient and he ended up being the psychiatrist's assistant weird right and then on his 21st birthday in 1969 he was released on parole 
against the recommendations. The psychiatrist was like, uh-uh, this man does not need to go back out there. But he did, and he was released into the care of his mother, who at the time had actually remarried, and her new last name was Strandberg. But then she eventually ended up getting divorced again. So his mom and that were back in California, and she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz, or USCS, U-C-S-C, because acronyms are hard. So he, uh, you know, he had demonstrated to those psychiatrists that he was rehabbed. And, um, but if you think about it, he kind of just manipulated them as a true serial killer does. And uh, in 1972, he actually had his, his juvenile records permanently expunged. And they, the last report from his probation psychiatrist read, quote, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we were dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is in my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation and real, like words are so hard, rehab, yeah, rehab. And uh, I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be a danger to himself or to a member of society. And it may allow him more time to, as an adult, to develop his potential. I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction, uh, words, expunction of his juvenile records. So he fooled them all. He, you know, these psychiatrists are like, oh, he's not in danger. We about to get in to why he, he, he is a danger. He's a danger. So he's staying with his mom, right? She, he got released to her and he attended community college in the area because he had to attend college as part of his like parole requirements. And he, he wanted to be a police officer. And because unfortunately at this point he was six, nine, which is very tall. Like he, he's a big dude. He was denied to be a police officer because of how big he was, which doesn't make sense to me. Um, but they often called him Big Ed and that. Uh, so he he maintained those relationships though. He really wanted to be a police officer. So he worked, not worked with them, but he hung out with them, with the Santa Cruz police officers. Just a, he became what he said was a friendly nuisance. Uh, there was a bar in the area called the Jury Room, which is like a popular hangout for, for local cops. And so he hung out with them a lot there. He worked at the time, was working some like just small little jobs. Uh, he ended up gaining employment at the state of California Division of Highways, also known as the California Department of Transportation. Uh, during his time, his relationship with mo his mom was still not good, toxic, hostile. And I mean, to the point where like neighbors could hear their arguments. And he ended up describing the arguments he had with his mother around this time as, quote, my mother and I started to have horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would, it would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I had had my teeth cleaned. So just minimal things that they were getting into. 
So once he had enough money, he had saved his money, he got his little jobs, he moved out to live with a friend. Um, he still com complained of not being able to get away from his mom because she just regularly was calling him up and would pay him some surprise visits. Uh, he did run into some financial disabilities, which unfortunately did end him, ended up, he ended up frequently returning to his mom's apartment. He at one point actually did meet someone and they got engaged, but after everything that happened, there was a, you know, arrests and stuff. He ever, obviously the engagement got broke off um, and her name never got released to the public because you don't want to be the person that fell in love with a serial killer. So same year as um, this breaking off of the engagement, he started working for the highway division. So he actually ended up getting hit by a car while riding a motorcycle that he had re recently purchased. His arm was pretty messed up, unfortunately, in the crash, and he ended up getting $15,000, which would be about $90,000 um, or so nowadays. And he settled for the civil civil suit and he filed against, you know, that's what he got after filing a civil suit against the car driver. As he was, uh, as he was driving around in a 1969 Ford Galaxy, he had bought with the settlement money, obviously, he noticed a lot of women were hitchhiking. And um, he began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. So a killer, a serial killer's kit, essentially. This is when he kind of started picking up young women, letting them go. I think he just kind of wanted the thrill of it. He picked up about 150 hitchhikers, he said, and he, before he started feeling these homicidal sexual urges, and he called them little zapples, and unfortunately, he started acting on them. So, May 7th, 1972, these are his first victims. He was driving in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-olds hitchhiking students from Fresno State, Mary Ann Pessy, and Anita Mary Luchessa. I'm just going to go by Mary and Anita. Um, he, he told them that they needed to go to Sanford University, so he was going to give them a ride. After driving for about an hour, he reached like a secluded wooden area, and this is kind of where he was familiar with because of his work with the highway department. Without alerting his passengers, that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go. So they didn't understand. They didn't notice that something was up. It was there when he handcuffed Marianne and locked Anita in the trunk. He then strangled and stabbed uh, Marianne to death and then ended up actually also killing Anita in a similar manner. He later confessed, confessed while he was handcuffing Marianne that he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him. So he even said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that after grazing her breast, despite he literally ended up murdering her. Um, he, you can hear my ice maker upstairs. Um, he ended up putting both of the bodies in the back, the trunk of his uh, Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way home by a police officer. He had a broken tail light, which obviously probably happened during this during these uh he's as he's killing people <laughs> and these two women 
and but the police officer never detected the women in the in the back of the car in the in the trunk so his roommate at the time was not home so he took the bodies into the apartment where he f- took pictures and then had sex with both of them and then he ended up dismembering both of them he put the body parts into plastic bags and then he abandoned them near Loma Prita Mountain and before disposing of their severed heads in the ravine he he essentially sexually assaulted the um, but just their heads and yeah so in August remember this happened in May in August of that year uh, Marianne's skull was found in the mountain and unfortunately they never ended up finding the rest of her body or any trace of uh, Anita's body. A couple of months later, um, just after pretty much they had found Mary Ann's skull, uh, just a youngin, unfortunately, September 14th, 1972, Ed picked up a 15-year-old dance student. Her name was Aikuku, and I apologize if that's, it's, I did, my best to find out the best way to to say her name I want to make sure that I'm honoring her um, and her as she's deceased she decided to hitchhike to dance class because she ended up missing her bus which is just one of those unfortunate wrong place wrong time situations so Ed picked her up drove her to a remote area and he pulled a gun on her before accidentally locking himself out of the car and innocent 15 year old her she let him back in the the car the, the gun was still in the car and she let him back in and he unfortunately proceeded to choke her um unconscious raped her and killed her he ended up packing her body into the trunk of his car went to a nearby bar to have a couple drinks and then returned to his apartment he later confessed that after he left the bar he opened the trunk of his car and like he was admiring his catch like a fisherman which he was that's bold right there's there's people around there that could have seen that at his apartment he unfortunately again had sexual intercourse with the the corpse he then dismembered and disposed of the remaining parts in a similar manner as um marianne and anita before and I did see something that he cut her hands off and kept them at his apartment because those are very identifiable. And that was his justification. He's like, well, they're very identifiable. He didn't want to get caught. Um, Aku's mom had called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter. And they put lots of flyers up for the information. But unfortunately, she didn't receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or her status. A few months later, in January 7th, 1973, he had moved back in with his mother Mother, and was driving around um, Cabrillo campus where he picked up 18-year-old Cynthia Ann, or Cindy uh, Shaw. He drove up to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then placed her body in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. His, when his mom left uh, the next morning, he had sexual intercourse with it and removed the bullet from her corpse and then dismembered, decapitated, and decapitated her in his mom's bathtub. 
he kept her her severed head, uh, Cindy's severed head, for a few days, regularly engaging in like oral sex with it, um, then buried it in his mother's garden, facing up towards her bedroom uh, after he was arrested, you know, after everything. He stated that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Uh, he discarded the rest of uh, Cindy's body by throwing them off a cliff. Um, all over the course of the following weeks, everything but her head and right, right hand were discovered and they ended up kind of being like pieced together. And later on, a pathologist determined that Cindy had actually been cut up with a power saw. The next couple of victims, February 5th, so about a month after Cindy, Ed had a heated argument with his mother and he left the house in search of possible victims. With the heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on, you know, hitchhikers in Santa Cruz, uh, the area, students had been advised to accept rides only from cars with university stickers. Well, Kemper had been able to obtain such a sticker because his mom worked for that university. So that, you know, he encouraged uh, Rosalind Heather Thorpe that, you know, in a 20, in a friend, 20 year old, uh, Alice Hen Helen or Allison Lou, um, they, you know, they seemed, they thought he was safe, right? He had a university sticker like they were supposed to. According to Ed, um, as Rosalind uh, Thorpe had gotten in the car, it kind of reassured Allison that he could also, she could also get in. He then eventually fatally shot Rosalind and then with uh, his pistol and Allison with the pistol and then they wrapped his bodies up in the blankets. He bought, brought their, their bodies back to his mother's house again. This time he beheaded them in the car and uh, carried the headless corpse into his mother's house to have a sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets for, to prevent identification. So he's, he's very smart, like he knows what he's doing. Once again, he has a very high IQ and then ended up just carting the, the remains the next morning. Some um, remains were found in uh, Eden Canyon a week later and more were ended up being found about a month later after he had, he had uh, killed them. When questioned in an interview to why he decapitated his victims, he explained the head trips fantasi fantasies were a bit like a trophy. He, you know, the head is where everything is, your brain's eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a whole lot left of a girl's body without the head, which is disgusting because he's talking about having, raping their bodies. So those are the end of the young women that he ended up killing. April 20th, about once again, about a month or so after, a couple months actually, after he had killed uh, Rosalind and Allison, uh, this is on April 20th, 1973. He came home, um, well, she, her, his mom came home from a party and awakened him when he got, when she got home. And while sitting in her bed reading a book, uh, Ed came into the room and said to him, um, well, yeah, said to him as he walked in, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. And Ed was like, no, 
Good night. He waited her for her to fall asleep. He snuck back in to the room and bludgeoned her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a pen knife. He decapitated her and engaged in oral sex with her severed head and used it as a dartboard. He stated that he put her head on the shelf and screamed at it for an hour and he threw darts at it. And ultimately he smashed her face in. He cut her tongue and larynx out and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the the vocal cords. Um, They're pretty tough and ejected the tissue back into the sink. And he ended up saying that seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me at me so much over the years. He hid his mom's corpse in a closet and went to drink at a nearby bar. Upon uh, returning home, he invited his mother's best friend, Sarah Taylor or Sally Hallett, over to the house to have dinner when watch a movie. When she arrived, Ed strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away together on vacation. He ended up putting her corpse in a closet, obscured out any like outward signs of a disturbance and left a note for the police. It read, quote, approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need to, for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it, not sloppy and incomplete, incompetent. Gents, just a lack of time. I've got things to do. So he ended up driving to Pueblo, Colorado. He explained that after leaving the house, he had driven for days He dropped one car off, rented a green Chevy Impala, and finally decided to turn himself in. He had been taking, because he he didn't fall asleep, he drove for days. He had been taking no-dose, which is like caffeine pills, for three days, and it made him feel crazy, which makes sense because not sleeping for that long, it literally messes your brain up, even more than his brain was already messed up. He listed about half a dozen other murders that he had, they had not yet solved the cops and stuff, and referred uh, over and over to the co-eds. He wanted, you know, he had called and confessed and he wanted someone to come pick him up. He had about 200 rounds of ammo and three guns in the car that scared him and he was turning himself in. But the cop did, thought it was a prank and he suggested the young man that Ed call back later. So Ed did end up calling back and once again had a difficult time convincing the person on the phone to take him seriously. Everybody who knew him thought it was just a practical joke. He continued to make calls until he was able to persuade an officer to check on his mother's house. Officer went to the house himself. As he entered, he smelled the smell of decomposition. He opened a closet and saw the blood and hair. He secured the scene and called in the coroner and the detectives. To their amazement, they found the two bodies, just as Ed had said, had described. Both had been decapitated and his mom had been battered and apparently used for dart practice. Her tongue and larynx, as Ed had said, were chopped up and having been placed in the garbage disposal. But as we said, the garbage disposal had spit them back out. Once he was picked up by the police in Colorado, he told them what he had done and waited for them to pick pick him up, uh, essentially unashamed that he had he confessed to necrophilia, which is having sex with a dead body, and cannibalism. Um, at his trial, he pled insanity, but he was found guilty of the eight counts of murder. He asked for the death penalty, but with capital punishment suspended at that time, he received life imprisonment. At the time of his murdering spree in Santa Cruz, another serial killer named Herbert Mullen was also active, 
earning this small this town right as the murder murder capital of the world and it did um and also adding to the college town's infamy infamy was the fact that there's multiple murders that proceeded three years later earlier by multiple murderers committed by john lenny fraser so santa cruz during this time was probably not a great place probably a little scary he had been behind um bars he has been behind bars since november 1973 where he's apparently a model prisoner like street books on tape um that are for the blind uh he was up for parole in 2007 and 2012 but told him to just keep him locked up um because he says that he's happy in jail yeah <laughs> he's happy in jail and he should stay in jail not safe not safe people he should not come out of jail <laughs> at all he yeah i i don't know what else to say about ed he, if you watch YouTube videos of him, he's very articulate, very well-spoken. And often you're watching and it's like, there's the lack of remorse. You don't even realize that he's talking about killing people the way he's so elegant in the way he speaks. And I knew about him and I ended up finding out more about him after I watched Mindhunters on Netflix. That's, they did a really good job casting him and it was just... It was just very interesting and that's when I kind of wanted to do more research on him I mean the guy looks just like him which is a very unfortunate to have to look like Ed Kemper not just because that's scary um, but yeah he very interesting the way he speaks he's very intelligent so it's just Ed Kemper is one of those ones that just kind of is just so interesting to me in this how he was and you know, there were a lot of red flags growing up, and I think that nowadays we know that those red flags exist. And, you know, could he have gotten help if they had noticed? Who knows? But unfortunately, nobody noticed. Nobody paid attention to him, what was happening, and he ended up, you know, taking eight lives, including his mom and, his, and her best friend. So I appreciate y'all coming out today. I appreciate y'all being patient with me a lack of episode last week i will let you know if i end up switching to bi-weekly that is a possibility as i become more pregnant due to fatigue due to just busyness and baby shower and my sister-in-law is giving birth in a couple and like a couple months um so just gonna be busy I, I i hope that you keep sticking around we're at like 250 downloads right now which is just great and is awesome and we're, I'm very excited about. Um, I'm working on getting better at the social the social media pieces of everything. I will make a TikTok for this episode right after I upload it. Um, but we, we're going to keep pushing forward, doing the best. If you have any suggestions, please let me know. Next week, we're going to do uh, Mary Bell. She was an 11-year-old serial killer. Very interesting, very scary um, because she's currently in the world somewhere and yeah that's terrifying but we'll have a couple uh other good ones coming up uh as well i kind of want to like i really like ed kemper which feels so weird to say but i don't want to do too one like too many ones that are covered all the time like charles manson or ted bundy like i was thinking i'm like really do i want to keep doing ones that so many podcasts have gone over them 
and I'm sure there are other podcasts that have done way better than I have. Um, so I want to make sure that I'm doing the best I can. It's, you know, a podcast, it would be different if I had a co-podcast host because we could, you know, the banter goes back and forth. And I, I really enjoy listening to podcasts that have more than one person. And me, it's just me staring at my computer, reading my notes and speaking into a microphone. Um, but I enjoy that. And, you know, like I say, my co-host is around here, but he doesn't have a lot to say. Um, he's just uh, normally napping behind me. But I do appreciate y'all coming out. Uh, I know that these are probably becoming a little bit more informal as we go, but that's just me. Uh, I just, I'm not a super formal person. I don't take myself too seriously. I take these cases very seriously because they are very serious. But this is just, uh, you know, I'm just an amateur. I'm just out here doing my best with what I got. And I appreciate y'all tuning in. Uh, follow me on my social medias. It's uh, just look up Crime Obsessed Dog Mom or CO Dog Mom Podcast. And you should be able to find me. I appreciate you coming out. Stay true crime obsessed, love on those animals, and I will talk to you all next week.